Last week, uh, we were held in the awe and majesty as we read the first 18 verses of John and the deity of Christ. And the Apostle John proclaimed Jesus as the Word, and the Word becoming flesh to dwell among us. And the beauty of the reality that Christ came to live among us should leave us in absolute wonder. And we continue that wonder tonight as we continue in the first chapter in verses 19 through 34. And the title of tonight's message is The Lamb of God. So starting in John chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this one is the Son of God. So the opening the opening section of this explains to us that this is the testimony of John the Baptist. And as we saw in the first part of chapter 1, John's purpose, his sole purpose in life was to pro proclaim Christ, to prepare the way of the Lord, to usher in the Messiah. It's interesting here that the Greek word for testimony is the word martyria, which is actually where we get our word martyr. So... It means simply to be a witness, and which is why we call those killed for our, our faith martyrs, because they are killed for being a witness for Christ. So John is bearing witness to, to what he knows, to the reason he has been sent. And as we discussed last time, he had a purpose before he was even born. We don't know much about John the Baptist. Uh, we see the recording of his conception and birth, as we discussed last week in Luke's Gospel. And in the first chapter of that Gospel, it says in verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John the Baptist was living out in the wilderness. We don't know what he was doing out there, um, but we assume he was preparing himself before God for an unknown amount of time, uh, preparing himself for the purpose that he had been given. And then God made it known to him that he was supposed to start his ministry in Luke, in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 3, it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and the Lysianitis, these are mouthfuls, 
Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So God speaks. He tells John it's time to fulfill his mission. It's time to serve his purpose. So John goes to the Jordan and to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a little bit different than the message that the Pharisees had been been preaching, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I want to talk about the region of the Jordan because it's significant that John went to the Jordan. The Jordan has been central throughout much of Scripture. In the Jordan, we see the Israelites crossing on their way to the promised land on dry ground. Elijah was taken into heaven at the Jordan. Naaman's leprosy was healed by dipping himself in the Jordan seven times. And Jesus Christ, as we will see in a moment, is baptized in the Jordan River. So John, he's preaching at this river, the Jordan, and the Jews send priests and scribes to talk with him because they want to find out who exactly John is. What is is he doing? Why Why is he baptizing? Now, I want to make a note here. When we see the term Jews in the Gospel of John, more times than not, it is not talking about the Jewish people as a whole. When we see the Jews, it's talking about the religious leaders, namely the Pharisees. But I think that for that reason, it's important for us to spend a few moments talking about the Pharisees. Who who were they? What were they purposed? Because they're going to be a dominant force as we go through John. We're going to see them time and time again, butting heads with Jesus, butting heads with his disciples, and ultimately figuring out a way to put Jesus to death. So there's much that is unknown regarding the Pharisees, but we do know a few things about them. A lot of it is from the scriptures themselves. And then also from the ancient historian Josephus, who described himself as one that lived according to the rules of the Pharisees. And Josephus, he, he lived in the late first century and the uh, first part of the second century. So he was uh, a contemporary of this time. And he tells us that the Pharisees were not only the only religious sect in Judaism, they were also the Sadducees and the Essenes. But the Pharisees, they had popular support throughout the region. So because of that, they were put in charge politically, and they were put in charge of religious thought and piety. And the Pharisees, they were strict. They were strict in their interpretation of the law, and I want to put emphasis on their interpretation of the law. And we will see this in the book of John. They tried to force everyone else to that same adherence into their interpretation. In fact, they were so strict in their rules that they would even question Jesus and his understanding of the law, which is kind of ironic, seeing how Jesus was God and gave us the law. But when we get to chapter 9, we will see the healing of the blind man, and we see them literally say that Jesus cannot be from God. And why do they say he cannot be from God? Chapter 9, verse 16 says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. You see, the Pharisees as a whole, as a whole they, were, they were more worried about rules. They were more worried about regulations. They were more worried about the law and twisting the law into ways that were beneficial for them. They were more worried about the power they had over the people because of their status instead of actually caring about those people and caring about whether or not those people knew God. The Pharisees, they are referenced 256 times in the New Testament. Out of those 256 times, 69 of those are here in the Gospel of John. 
And so it was this group of legalists, this group of Pharisees that sent the priests and scribes to ask John this simple question. And in verse 19, it says, The testimony of John, when the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? And John was plain in saying that he was, he was not the Messiah. And this is actually our first point tonight. The first point tonight is John is not the Messiah. John is not the Messiah. Verse 20 says this, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, it seems a little odd that he would immediately say this when all they said was, who are you? But we remember earlier in the chapter, we see him proclaiming the Messiah. And back in verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John understood the real question. They may have just said, who are you? But he understood what they were getting at. So they, he decided to head them off from the start. And he knew that they were asking him, do you consider yourself to be the Messiah? And of course he said no. And of course they must not have been paying attention because if they'd been paying attention to what he was saying, they would know he didn't consider himself to be the Christ, but he was proclaiming the arrival of Christ. But they were not going to be deterred. So they asked more pointed questions. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Interesting thing, the Jews then and the Jews still today, they know that Elijah never actually died physically. He was caught up into heaven. In 2 Kings 2.11 it says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now that is, that's one way to go to heaven right there. You get caught up in a whirlwind. But Elijah is talking to his disciple Elisha. And they're walking along the Jordan, and all of a sudden, Elijah is caught up into heaven. And in Malachi, we see why the Jews thought that John the Baptist might be Elijah coming back from heaven. Because in Malachi 3.1 and in Malachi 4.5, it says this, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And then chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Malachi, Malachi is one of the minor prophets. This is one of the books right there at the end of the Old Testament that a lot of people just kind of forget about. They don't study a lot. They don't have a lot of memorable verses uh, overall. Pretty much the only one that people really talk about is Jonah because they want to talk about the guy that got eaten by a huge fish who wouldn't want to talk about that but these these are important books that often get overlooked and Malachi is the last prophet before 400 years of silence God is silent for 400 years and this is the last thing that Malachi had said and this is interesting because they know that Malachi said Elijah the prophet would come so they are looking for the physical prophet Elijah because he had never died. But John answered and said that he was not Elijah. So how can he be proclaiming the Christ but not be Elijah? This is what the Jews would have been thinking. But this is also confusing for us today because Christ said this in Matthew eleven fourteen. 14. Jesus said, for all the prophets 
and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he, meaning John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Okay, so we have a problem here. We've got Jesus saying that John was Elijah, but we've got John saying, no, I'm not Elijah. So we've got a contradiction in Scripture. That's a major problem, right? We need to note that it's important that when we come across things that seem contradictory in Scripture, we need to look into it a little more. Because there is no contradictions in Scripture. Scripture cannot and will not contradict itself. If it did contradict itself, we have a major problem. It's not the inerrant Word of God. And if it's not the inerrant Word of God, well, then we might as well throw this book away. We don't need it. But it's not a contradiction because if you look in Luke 1.17, which we actually discussed last week in the first part of John 1, Luke 1, remember, is when the angel of the Lord, he comes to Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father. He's foretelling the birth of John. And this is what the angel said to Zechariah in verse 17 of Luke 1. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, we see this in Luke 1, and now we understand what Christ was saying. John fulfilled the prophecy that we see back in Malachi 4, 6, because we see the exact same phrasing that I just read in Luke 1. Malachi 4, 6 says, and this will sound very familiar, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So there is no contradiction here. Is John Elijah? Well, the answer is both yes and no. He's not the physical Elijah that the Jews were expecting to see. And now we're starting to see a pattern here. The Jews were expecting a different type of Messiah. They were wrong. They were expecting to see physical Elijah, and they were wrong. So after denying that he was Elijah... They asked him if he was a prophet. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what is meant by this. Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that a prophet would be raised up to speak the word of God. However, in the first century, they didn't know who this prophet would be. Was it going to be Moses? Was it going to be Elijah, as we just saw? Was it going to be one of the other prophets resurrected? They expected to see a physical prophet and did not know who it would be. So nobody knew who the prophet was, but John knew it was not him. But the Jews had to have an answer. They weren't just going to settle for, no, no, I'm not him, I'm not this, I'm not that. They wanted an answer. They wanted to know who he was. So they asked him again in verse 22, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they don't just ask him who he is. They want to know, okay, well, if you're not going to tell us who you are, what do you say about yourself? What is your purpose? as if he hadn't already said that just a few minutes before this. And so this brings us to our second point tonight. The first was that John is not the Messiah. The second point tonight is John is the fulfillment of prophecy. In verse 23, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is a direct Fulfillment and a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, which says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert highway for our God. So John, he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
He was the one declaring the way of the Lord. He was the one proclaiming the Messiah. He was the one paving the way for Jesus to come into the world and to start his ministry. He had lived in the wilderness most of his life, but now he is on the scene and the Messiah is right there with him. This is actually one of the few instances where a story or a quotation in one of the Gospels is not in one Gospel or a couple of Gospels. This is actually in all four Gospels. This is of utmost importance to know that he is the one coming with authority to proclaim the Messiah has come. And John actually um, accomplished two things by, by quoting Isaiah in this verse. The first thing that he accomplished is he has now revealed who he was, and he's revealed his purpose. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, but he also declared to make straight the path of the Lord. And it will be the very next day, as we'll see in a few moments, that John would identify Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, his first cousin, who he would have known since a kid. But the Jews were not done interrogating John. They brought a challenge against him, as we see in verses 24 through 28, which say this. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Well, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, a strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So they're questioning John's authority here. Okay, well, you're not Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Who are you? Who are you to say you can baptize people? And who are you to say that they are the forgiveness of the sins? Are you a priest? Are you a Pharisee? Are you part of us? Who do you think you are? Remember, John was preaching repentance and then baptism as a sign of forgiveness of sins. And they wanted to know what authority he had to do such things. But John had already said he was not the Christ. He had already said he was not Elijah, not a prophet. And these would have been the only types of figures that the Pharisees would have accepted to have this type of authority. And John didn't have that as far as they were concerned. But John's answer to them is perfect. John's answer brings us to our third point tonight. The third point tonight is that one greater is coming. One greater is coming. I baptize with water is what John said. And then he said something interesting. He said that there is one among you that you do not even know. As I was reading and, and studying for tonight, it was interesting. I read in one of the commentaries, the author of that commentary pointed out the tragedy of this. He said, it's a tragedy that here are the servants of the Pharisees who are interrogating John because they wanted to weed out false messiahs that were coming. And in their, in their fervency to weed out false messiahs, they missed the true one. They missed the true one. Jesus was among them and they did not know who he was. They were blinded. They did not want nor did they wish to believe in Christ. Ultimately, as we go throughout this book, we're going to see it's a power struggle. They, they enjoyed absolute control that they had over the Jews, and they wanted to keep that power. They enjoyed their status with the Roman Empire. They were given great freedom by the Romans to kind of basically do whatever they want because the Romans didn't want an uprising in that, in that region. So it's a power struggle. And it's the same reason Herod tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby. 
and uh, Mary Joseph and Jesus had to flee to Egypt to escape the, the killing of the children. And it's all about power. They wanted a king with authority, not someone like Jesus. As we discussed in the prologue of John, they rejected him because he didn't come in the way that they thought the king should arrive. It's amazing how often that we think our thoughts and our plans are greater than God's thoughts and plans. And it's the same today. It's been going on, like I said, last week, all the way from Adam all the way down down to us. We seem to forget that we're not God and that we want things done in our way. And when we don't get our way, we, we just reject it. We reject it. Again, John shows us that he recognizes the high office of Christ as we move on to verse 27. It says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John knew who Christ was at this point. And John understood the holiness of Christ made him unworthy to be allowed to do anything for Christ. That's something that today we, myself included, we, we sometimes fail to recognize. We, we fail to recognize the complete and total holiness of God and what all that entails. When we think of the holiness of God, we need to think of passages like Exodus chapter 3. This is the scene with Moses at the burning bush. And he said, Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Or passages like Exodus 28, where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, and they would tie sound makers to these priests to make sure that they hadn't been struck dead by the holiness of God. It says in Exodus 28, verses 40 through 43, For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die because God's presence was so holy. Or that there were only certain times in the Old Testament when the high priest could even come into the holy place where God's presence resided. In Leviticus 16, 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now what had happened to Aaron's sons is they had uh, made an unscheduled sacrifice. And they brought it in. And the Lord saw that as unholy and they were struck dead. This is the holiness of God. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to just be lax about. But it says this, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. The holiness of God is so great that for all eternity we're going to hear praises around God's holiness day and night. It says in Revelation 4, 8 through 11, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We do not even begin to understand the holiness of Christ. It, we can't comprehend it. It is impossible. And so I know John the Baptist didn't fully understand it either, but he knew this. He was not even worthy to untie the sandal of Christ. In that culture, tying, untying the sandals was, was a servant's job, the lowest servant's job. So John was saying that he was not even worthy to touch the dirty and filthy shoes of Christ. He was not worthy enough to do something that those who were unspeakable would do compared to the majesty of Christ. Christ is above all things, above all people, above all ideas. His holiness stretches further than we can imagine. Romans eleven thirty six says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all glory forever. Amen. And this is, this is setting the stage. John is setting the stage for what's going to happen the next day, which brings us to our fourth point tonight. Our fourth point point tonight, and this is our final point tonight, is that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Starting in verse 29 of John chapter 1, it says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is, this is a huge statement. In this statement, John proclaims exactly who Jesus is. He identifies Jesus as the Messiah that had been promised centuries before. He was presenting and proclaiming Christ as the King who would come and that the Jews would ultimately reject. Now, out of all the Gospels, John is actually the only one that calls Christ the Lamb of God. And of, of that, it's only in the first chapter, and it's only the words of John the Baptist. Nowhere else do we see the phrase Lamb of God. In fact, the only other place in Scripture we see Christ even referred to as the Lamb is in Revelation, which is kind of interesting since John also wrote Revelation. Paul does describe Christ as our Passover, and people understand that to mean our Passover lamb. And there are many other titles that Christ will receive as we go through the Gospel of John, but Lamb of God is significant. I mentioned just a second ago the Passover lamb. This is referencing the lambs that would be killed and eaten during the first Passover and subsequent Passovers that commemorate the 10th plague in Egypt, when God killed the firstborn of Egypt, and says this in Exodus 12, starting in verse 3. 
It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make count for your lamb. Your lamb should be without blemish, a male a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And I'll skip down to verse 7. It says, Then they shall take some blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then down to verse 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is foreshadowed. The blood on the door, the, the wood of the door is a symbol of the blood on the wood of the cross. Just as God had mercy on Israel and Egypt because of the blood of the pure and spotless lambs that they had killed and sacrificed, he will have mercy on his children that receive him because of the blood of the perfect lamb who is without sin, without blemish, without spot. A more specific foreshadow of Christ is actually seen in Genesis chapter 22. Now, we don't have time to go over the full story tonight. We'd be here forever if I kept doing all of these illusions. But it's God testing his servant Abraham when he goes to sacrifice Isaac. You know the story. It says this in verse 2 of Genesis 22. He said, here, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham, he sets out on this Mount Moriah. And he takes everything needed for the burnt offering sacrifice, except the sacrifice necessary to burn, at least as far as Isaac was aware. So obviously Isaac, he's confused. They, they reach the top of the mountains and his father Abraham, he's preparing the altar for the burnt offering. He's got the knife out. He's got the fire ready. And... Uh, Isaac can't resist asking the question. In verse 7, he says to his father Abraham, My father, and Abraham replied, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where's the lamb, father? What are we going to do? We don't have the offering to complete this. And Abraham responds this way in verse 8. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. You know the story. Abraham gets ready to sacrifice Isaac, and as he's raising the knife to kill his son, he's told to stop. And God provides not a lamb, but a ram, which was also considered to be clean. He would provide the lamb that Abraham foreshadowed centuries later. And that was the perfect Lamb of God. You see, in 2 Chronicles 3.1, we learn that Mount Moriah would become the Temple Mount centuries later, and it was just outside that same region that the Lamb, the true Lamb that God would provide, would be crucified. So sacrificial lambs, they're, they're a cornerstone in, in Jewish thinking and thought. They understand that's God's redemptive plan, that there are sacrifices, and that there would eventually be the Messiah. So this was not a new concept to them. When John said the Lamb of God, they knew exactly what he meant. And as I said, John is the only gospel that has the phrase, but this goes back to the fact that John is deeply focused on the person of Christ and giving deep theology about who Christ is, why he came, and what he actually accomplished. 
Now, also in that verse when it says the sins of the world, this is something we're going to be discussing a lot in the book of John. The word world is all over the place in the book of John, and it means multiple things depending on how it is used. For example, the word world can mean the actual creation of the world. It can mean the earth. It can mean the world's system, the system of evil, sin. It can mean the people of the world. It can mean all individual people of the world. It can mean groups. So as we go through the book, we need to pay close attention to how John is using the word, because if we mess it up, it can have severe ramifications theologically. For example, this verse states, the sin of the whole world is taken away. Does that mean the sin of each and every individual person? Well, of course not. Because if it did, that would lead to what is known as universalism. If everybody's sins are paid for, well, then everybody goes to heaven. It doesn't matter if they believe or not. That's what universalism is. It's no matter what you believe, no matter what you do, it doesn't matter if you believe in Allah, Christ, Buddha, what yourself, nobody, you go to heaven regardless. That's universalism. But we know the sad reality is not everybody goes to heaven. There are some people who do not believe and do spend eternity in hell. So in this particular verse, the meaning of the word world is humanity in general. That God isn't a respecter of persons. Now the Jews listening, they would have been taken aback by this statement because they were expecting that they are the ones that are God's chosen people. They are the ones that are going to be saved. It's not for the Gentiles. It's for the Jews and the Jews alone. But here John is saying it's for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. All peoples, but not every individual. The Baptist continues explaining his position on Christ in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. As we stated last week, John knew his place in relation to Christ. Jesus came after John, but he was before John, well before John, because he was God. Interesting fact is found in the next verse where John states he did not know Christ, even though he would have grown up with Jesus. They were first cousins. They were very close together in age, just months apart from each other. And so before he moved into the wilderness, they would have, they would have been together frequently. But in these last verses, verses 31 through 34, we have one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. It says this, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of of God. John, he didn't know him or know his position. He came to baptize with water so that Christ might be revealed to Israel as had been prophesied in Isaiah. But the Lord descended upon Christ to show John exactly who the Messiah was, and John bore witness of that from that moment on. John knew because God told him that Jesus was the perfect lamb and son of God. John, he was he was just the messenger. He was just the messenger that proclaimed the Messiah. The Messiah was here, the greatest miracle that ever happened, that the Lamb of God would take the sin of the world. That Lamb was now in the world, 
and as we will see next week, ready to begin his ministry. So how should this impact us? What, what should we do with this information and take away from this? I think the application is clear. We should react to Jesus in the same way that John reacted to Jesus, that we are not worthy to even untie the strap of his sandal because Christ is so high above us. He is so wonderful. He is so pure, so holy, so perfect that we should prostrate ourselves before him in awe and wonder, knowing that he is the sacrificial lamb of God that gives us life. There's nothing in us that is good. We saw it last week. It's only because of Christ and because of the holiness of Christ, the perfect and spotless lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you that you did send your son to be that spotless and perfect sacrifice that we did not deserve. And we don't know why you chose us for salvation, Lord, but we know that you did. And God, we are immensely grateful for that. Let us never forget your place and our place. And let us worship you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.